Well, I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's really good to be uh, with you and be in the presence of God. I, I just love worshiping alongside of you folks and just sensing the power of God here. It's just it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to start by giving a shout out to Nicole Bullock, who just landed it last week. Was that not an awesome message? Amen. That girl can preach. Man. I guarantee you, you'll be seeing more of her. Uh, she's just a gift. I also want to give a shout out to our pod listeners. Our pod listeners are, are, are they're not parishioners, right? The parishioners are those who attend. Pod listeners are those who can't attend, but uh, they, they podcast. And we've got a lot of them. And once a year, we, we do this thing called Sustain, where we invite them and ask them to help sustain this ministry, uh, if, they're bidding, if they're benefiting from it, to pray about uh, giving back to it, uh, to keep it sustained, to keep it going. And th this, th this year, our goal was to get 375 people to sign up on a regular schedule where they just are, are contributing automatically every month. So 375. We actually got 390. Sorry for spitting. 390. Yes, that was great. And a total uh, pledge of $204,000. So that, that, that's, that's, that's a significant. So thank you, Padrishners. Let's give them a hand. Thank you, Padrishners. Appreciate that. You, and you, and you. You there. Um, and uh, we had... Uh, Contributions come from 44 out of the 50 states in America and uh, 15 different countries. So praise God. That, that's, just, that's beautiful. I was, um, I was here last week to introduce uh, Nicole, but before that I was at conferences in two consecutive weeks giving talks. And uh, the, I was just, it's so the most blessed aspect of going to these conferences, I mean, I love to teach and all that stuff, but it's, it's the feedback I get, uh, the testimonies I get from people about what this church means to them, what this ministry means to them. And uh, just get some of the most moving, uh, beautiful words about how this ministry has saved their faith or saved the faith of a loved one or just ignited them or transformed their view of God or freed them from shame or just whatever it is. And, and I get to hear all of this, and it's just beautiful. I just want you to know that you're part of something that's really significant. It's significant what goes on in the building here, but Beyond that, it's significant in terms of what it's impacting, this movement that's going on, and it's just a thing of absolute beauty. So thank you for playing the part that you play in that, because we're all in this together. We, we all need each other to be all we can be in, in, in the body of Christ, and so some really cool things are happening there. Okay, uh, we are in this series called Glimpses of Truth. Uh, the title of the series and, and the very concept of it is actually based largely on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, uh, where in the Phillips translation it says that in the past they got glimpses of truth. Uh, but in these last days, or in this last epic, we've got the Son himself, the truth itself. Uh, and when the book of Hebrews talks about the Son, he's talking about Yahweh incarnate, Yahweh embodied. That's what they call the Son of God. So it's not the Son of God as opposed to God, the Son of God who is God in, in human form. And in contrast to the glimpses that they had in the past, we have got the Son himself. God comes to us in person. And in contrast to the glimpses they had in the past, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. They saw reflections, momentary reflections of God's glory. But the sun is the shininess of God's shininess. Whenever God shines, it looks like Jesus. And, and in contrast to the things in the past where they got maybe aspects of God's character, got glimpses of God's character, uh, the sun is exactly what God is like, it says in Hebrews 1.3, exactly what God is like, down to his very essence, hypostasis, the core of his being is Jesus-like. There's no part of God that's not Jesus-like. And more specifically, that's not the crucified Christ-like. It's not cross-like. There's not any part of God that's not cruciform. 
And so they had glimpses, but we have the, the honor of having the full revelation of exactly what God is like all the way down. And our job is to trust that. Trust that God is that beautiful. What we're doing in this series then is knowing what God is really like as he's revealed in Christ. We're looking back to see glimpses of truth. Now, if, if you're outside and you're only getting glimpses of the sun, which we're not even getting that these days, are we? Is it still raining out there today? I'm so tired of the rain. Yesterday was depressing. Stop it. We rebuke the rain. We want some sun. Well, if you can't have the S-U-N, at least we have the S-O-N. The S-O-N's a whole lot better. Hallelujah. <laughs> This rope here is kind of rowdy. You guys are rowdy. I noticed that. Oh, worship long you've been rowdy. You can keep it up. I, I, I like that. Amen. And, um, so, uh, yeah, we need glimpses. If you're outside and, it's mostly cl- and you're only getting glimpses, that means it's mostly cloudy. And so, so as we read the Old Testament, we've got to know that, that, that there's, there's, there's a cloud of clouds there. But insofar as they're seeing glimpses of the truth, they're seeing what we see, only they, they only saw it momentarily and, and in fragments. We see the, the, the whole thing. And they, where they were at, they weren't always clear on what is a cloud and what is the sun. They couldn't distinguish the two. But since we know exactly what God is like down the core of his being, we can. And so the, the glimpses of truth are wherever we're reading the Old Testament and we find that it's, it's consistent with, and it reflects the same character as Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that is where the sun's breaking through the clouds. And so we're looking at various aspects of the, the glimpses that they got. And Hebrews 1 and many, many, many other passages, it presupposes or explicitly teaches that God is not a coercive God. And this is why they had clouds, why God had to put up with clouds back then. It's because God's not going to coercively make the clouds go away. God's not going to coercively change your brain. going to come down and make you have true conceptions of him and force you to have true beliefs about him. He always respects the personhood of people. He always respects the fact that they're made in the image of God. He never will reduce human beings to automatons. And because of that, then he has to function like a, a heavenly missionary to a foreign land where he'll influence things as much as possible to reveal as much of his, himself as possible. But because he's not going to coerce anybody, there comes a point where he's got to let them alone in their errors. He accommodates their misconceptions and accommodates their wrong beliefs. And to the degree that he do, does that, he bears their sin. He bears their sin. And that's why in Scripture... Uh, some of the portraits of God are, are, are going to reflect the ugliness of the sin that he bears. That's what was meant by a cloud. They had conceptions and influences from their culture and influences from their just stubborn hearts that prevented them from seeing clearly and consistently who God really is. So as we look back, we have to distinguish the clouds from the sun. And, and the reason why God does all this, he accommodates people where they're at because he, wants, he has to stay in the game. He wants to keep on influencing them Moving them in a direction where they can get a, a, a greater capacity, increasing capacity to see who he truly is. And as they see more and more clearly who he truly is, and there's less and less clouds in the way, well, that gets reflected in Scripture as well. They, they therefore convey truer and truer conceptions of God. And that's why you see a progress in Revelation. Uh, it, it's slow, it's incremental, it's, it's, it's not always even, but the, the, there's a slow progress. Early on, they thought that you know, God really enjoyed the smell of those sacrifices, but later on, they learned that God really isn't into the animal sacrifices. That's not the kind of sacrifice he wants. So there's a progress. But it's not because God got better and better, or he improved, like he's growing up or something. It's because people are growing up. People got clearer and clearer about who God is, and that's reflected in Scripture. And by the way, this is not at all a new conception. In fact, the church has always held to progressive revelation because it's obvious in Scripture. 
But uh, this, this idea that Scripture reflects both, both some of what the, the true God, but also what people think about God, uh, that, that was very prevalent in the early church. That was one of the ways that they explained the violent portraits of God in, in, in the Bible. So, for example, novation. I read this, uh, or part of this, about six, seven weeks ago. But it's worth re- re- repeating. Novation is writing in the third century. He lived from 200 to 258. He's an early church theologian. And he says, God sometimes had prophets use symbolic language that was fitted or that conformed to the Israelites' state of belief and that reflects God not as God actually is, but as the people were able to understand. He comes down to their level. That's just the kind of God he is. God, therefore, is not mediocre, but the people's understanding is mediocre. And God is not limited, but the people's understanding or their capacity of their mind is limited. And so, since God's not a course of God, what you find in Scripture is sometimes limited pictures of God, pictures that reflect limited truth, or, have a, or, or that portray God in mediocre ways. But Novation knows that. No, we know from Jesus Christ that God's not at all mediocre. He's anything but mediocre. And so whenever we find mediocre, we've got to know that, that, that that's reflected in the people's understanding. And what reveals God to us is that he is willing to stoop down to their level. Uh, he does what he does on the cross. He stoops to their level and, and bears their sin. So we're looking at the glimpses of truth. And what we want to look at this morning is the glimpse of truth that has to do with God's love. Has God always been as loving as he is in Jesus Christ? And the answer to that, to cut to the chase, is yes. He's always been as loving as he is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, when it comes to his character, doesn't change. But what changes is people's perception of that character. They couldn't always see the love of God. In fact, when it comes to the love of God, they tended to be particularly cloudy. And the reason is because in their culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, and the Israelites are part of that broader culture, love was simply not an attribute that you applied to God or to the gods. No one at the time is thinking of God as love. In fact, the way that you praise God in the ancient Near East is by ascribing violence to him. That's the primary way you praise uh, your deity. Um, and, and, and their idea was that the more ferocious the God is, the better. And so they would brag about how ferocious their God is, how ruthless their God is, how violent their God is. Uh, and, and the more macabre it was, the better. So you know, our God is, is a ferocious, ruthless, relentless God who can rip the heads off of his enemies and he eats their young and dances in their blood. And they think they're complimenting God by talking that way. And that's why you have some of the Old Testament authors sometimes talk close to that way. Yahweh's sword drinks their blood and eats their flesh and things like that. Well, this is how in that culture they think they're praising God, which already tells you a lot of what... Uh, the patience of God, how low he had to stoop to stay in relation with these, with these people. And he's not going to coerce them into having these lovely pictures of God, so he has to tolerate them having these ugly pictures of God while he's continuing to influence them in the right direction. When it comes to the love of God, they often were, 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 were pretty cloudy about that. Because uh, everyone at the time is cloudy. I'll give you one example of a cloudy picture of God's love. Um, could give you a bunch of examples. Uh, chapter 7 of the, my book Crucifixion of the Warrior God is all clouds. I just lay out all the ugly, violent pictures there. So if you ever want to get really depressed, read chapter 7. If you're feeling like you're just too happy and you've got to put a lid on it, you've got to reel it back, this is the book to do it, all right? Chapter 7. But it's this typical ancient Near Eastern stuff. So one, one example. Uh, in, in Joshua, chapter 8. Here you have a picture of God uh, giving instructions on how to wipe out a city. Clever instructions on how to wipe out a city. The city is the city of I. A-I. I. 
Sounds like a Scottish city or something. Aye, Captain. Aye. Aye. What city is that? Aye. No, what city is it? Aye. Okay, so it's aye. Arr. It's right next to the city of Arr. Arr, aye. Okay. So here's the picture of God, you guys. The Lord is depicted as saying, okay, to conquer the city, you divide your troops into three groups, Israelites. Three groups. First group's going to charge the city head on. And then the men of I are going to be fighting back at you. And you act like you're losing. And, and, and then you quickly get fearful and, and run away. Of course, you're pretending, but I want you to run away. Because when you run away, the men of I are going to pursue you. They're going to chase you. And that will leave all the women and children defenseless in the city walls. And so then the second group's going to invade the city. And you, it explicitly says, you slaughter every, every woman and every child and every infant. Oh, but you can spare the goats and the cattle and use them as spoils of war, which was weird because most of the time they had to kill them too. In this case, they're allowed for some reason to keep them. But slaughter the, the women and the children. They're defenseless now. It'd be easy. And then burn the city to the ground to make sure you got everybody. And see, what will happen is the, 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 the men of Ai, Ai who are chasing the Israelites, they're going to hear the screams of their wives and children, and they're going to see the smoke rising up from the rubble, and they're going to panic and want to go back. But that's when a third group comes in, and you come, you, you, you come between them and the city. And so then you attack them. And the, the, the Israelites who are running from them, you turn around and you attack them. So they're being attacked by both sides. And now you'll slaughter all the men just like you slaughtered all the women and the children, and victory will be yours. But keep the king alive for a little bit so he can watch the whole thing. And then string them up on a tree and leave them there all night long. What an edifying story. Make sure you share that in children's church next week. It's a... See, this is a, in the end, it says 12,000 people were slain. And, and, and one of the really dark aspects of this story is that this people of I didn't do anything. They didn't do anything wrong. They're minding their own business. The Israelites are the aggressors. They just, if we were reading this from a, from a Canaanite perspective, man, we would hate those Israelites because they just, they're ruthless. They just go around slaughtering people. We, don't do, we didn't do anything to them to deserve this. Well, see, as I am interpreting it, you don't have to agree with this, but, but uh, God had said that this is going to be your land. This is your promised land. And uh, um, um, what they heard was, oh, so we're supposed to go in there and slaughter everybody so we can take over the land. And that's why these people are being slaughtered. See, this is a cloudy picture of God. And you know it's cloudy because, A, it closely resembles what everybody else believes in their culture. This, is a, this portrait of God is what you'd expect, given that they're a part of the ancient Eastern culture. And, B, it doesn't resemble anything like the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. It doesn't resemble Jesus who says to Peter, put away your sword. That's not how we fight here in the kingdom. And then he heals the guards there to show how you fight in the kingdom. It doesn't resemble Jesus who rebukes James and John for wanting to call down fire from heaven to incinerate some people they don't like very much. It doesn't resemble Jesus who, who, who shows that he would, he would rather die for enemies rather than kill his enemies. It doesn't resemble Jesus who taught us to never retaliate, to, to never resort to violence. He taught us to love our enemies and bless our enemies and serve our enemies and give them something to eat when they're hungry and something to drink when they're thirsty. It doesn't resemble Jesus. This picture of God here doesn't look at all like Jesus because it doesn't look like love. And love, the New Testament defines love by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. 1 John 3.16. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay our life down for one another. That is love. Love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. You show what a person's worth by what you're willing to sacrifice. And so Calvary is the perfect expression of love. Killing people is the opposite. Because when you kill someone, you're saying your life is not worth living. You have no worth. It's the opposite of loving them. 
And so the portrait of God commanding the slaughter, the merciless slaughter of 12,000 people, is not at all resemble the God who's revealed in, in, in Jesus Christ. So we know that it's a shadow. It's a shadow. Having said that, it's also the case that it's divinely inspired because Jesus endorses the entire canon, the entire collection of books that makes up the Bible as being divinely inspired. As divinely inspired, he says, for the purpose of pointing to him. In fact, he says it's all about me. Even more specifically, he says it's about him and his sufferings on the cross. Paul says the same thing, 1 Corinthians 15. And so all of it is inspired. That's not in question. And it's inspired to point to Jesus and especially to Jesus' self-sacrificial love revealed on the cross. So the question then is, how does the portrait of God commanding the slaughter, the merciless slaughter of 12,000 people, including the women and children, how does that point to the God who's revealed on the cross? And, and there's different ways that people can work out this out and solve this problem. So this isn't a doctrine, but what I'm submitting to folks, and this is what I wrote about in the book, is, is that it, it points to the cross because it reveals God the same way the cross does. On the cross, what reveals God is not, not what we see on the surface. It, that's ugly because the surface reflects the ugliness of the sin that God bears. But what reveals God to us is when we, by faith, look through that surface and we see God stooping this distance to enter into solidarity with our sin and our condemnation. And therefore, he takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin and condemnation. That's how the cross reveals God. And that's how these ugly pictures of God reveal God. Uh, when we come upon a portrait of God that on the surface doesn't resemble Jesus, well, exercise the same faith you exercise towards the cross. With, by faith, look through the ugliness. Because the ugliness doesn't tell you anything about God. The ugliness tells you about the people that God has to deal with. This is how they view God. This is, the, this is what they think God is like. And God's bearing that sin because he's staying in fellowship with them, but by faith look through that. And what reveals God to us is that he humbly is willing to step down and keep on working with these people despite the fact that they view him this way. He bears their sin. He stays in solidarity with them even though it makes him look bad. He's a God who, is, who puts love above uh, his reputation. And Jesus reveals this, right? Jesus hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors. So all the religious people are thinking, oh, he's one of the prostitutes and tax collectors, and he condones that stuff. He, 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 he's, like, he's willing to allow his reputation to be tainted because of a, his greater love. Well, if Jesus reveals what God has always been like. God's always been doing that. He's always been hanging out with sinners and working with sinners, and so he gets portrayed in sinful ways. But what reveals God to us is that we know from the cross that God's always been like that. He's a stooping God. He's a, he's a, he's a humble God. He's a God who's always revealed his beauty by taking on our ugliness. Praise God. And taking on our ugliness, he transforms us out of his ugliness. All Scripture is inspired for the purpose of bearing witness to the cross. Amen. Amen. And then... And then I find that when I read Scripture in that way, I find all sorts of confirming evidence, stuff I didn't notice before. Uh, you might find it too, but maybe not. You're free to disagree with this. But I, I find a lot of evidence that God never wanted his people to use the sword. In fact, he was always telling them, if you'll just trust me, you'll never have to use the sword, including when you go into Canaan. I shared this a couple weeks ago, seven weeks ago or so, but uh, you find that these, these plans that God had to get into Canaan without using the sword. And this confirms that we're dealing with a shadow picture here. The idea that God is commanding them to go into the land with violence, well, it, it's conflicted by, by other passages that say that God will get, get you in there without violence. So, for example, in, in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord says, Do everything that I command today. Then I will force out the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Parasites and the Termites and all the other ones. <laughs> all these ites. Ice, 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 boy, ice. So, 
look at, look at, there Yahweh is saying, I'll drive them out before you. You're not going to have to lift a finger, let alone kill any baby. No, I'll do it. And you find, you find a number of, of portraits of God saying, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it myself. If you just trust me. I just, just trust me. Or another example is, is in Exodus 23. I will send the pestilence or the, the insects in front of you and drive out the Hivites and Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. Now, I'm not going to drive them out in one year because then the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So he wanted to grow them more. So that, that implies he's going to take a generation. I'm going to do this real slowly. Slowly migrate you in, slowly migrate them out. Another passage says, I'm going to make the land unfruitful so it won't yield crops. And the land will vomit them out. They'll want to get out of there. They'll, they'll migrate out. But he again says, I'm going to do it slowly because I don't want the land to become desolate and overrun with wild animals. So I gradually migrate you in and migrate them out. That seems like a real, much more Jesus-like way of taking over the land, doesn't it? That, that reflects the character of God. Ease in and ease out. What happened to those plants? Now think about this. Nonviolent, slowly, no one has to get hurt. And then all of a sudden, slaughter them all. Everything that breathes, dedicate them to me by just offering them up. Men, women, children, and infants, and even the animals, slaughter them all. What happened? Do it nice, do it slow, no one gets hurt. Slaughter them all. Leave nothing alive. Unless you find a, an attractive virgin, then, okay, fine. But otherwise, suck, kill them. That's what it says, you guys. Although sometimes it says spare the trees because they haven't done anything wrong. Okay, well, you, you have two, two ways of thinking about this. On the one hand, maybe God just got in a real bad mood. Huh? Uh, he changed his mind, got in a bad mood. He was like, let's do it nice, let's do it nice. Okay, no, I'm ticked off, kill them all. That could possibly... Although Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever, so I don't know about that one. Option number two is the people didn't get it. The people didn't get it. And I'll just tell you from where I sit, the second option is far more plausible than the first option. The people didn't get it. And the reason I think that is because they never got it. I mean, the Old Testament emphasizes how they didn't get it, how they were spiritually dull, how there's no knowledge of God in the land. How they're always trying to be like their, their, their pagan neighbors. And they're always tempted to see God according to their, their pagan neighbors. They never got it. Uh, it's, it's, and that, that, that goes on into the New Testament. I said this a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus, you know, when he's teaching his disciples, he says, I'm going I'm to suffer and die. And they don't get it. Because their idea of the Messiah is that he's going to be victorious. And he's going to win. So he says, I'm going to suffer and die. And, and they, they go, okay, so you're going to triumph and win. No, no, I'm going to suffer and die. Okay, so you're going to kick the Romans' butt and, and liberate Israel. No, you, I'm going to suffer and die. No, 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 no. Okay, so you are saying then that we are going to reign with you forever uh, and be victorious over Rome. They don't get it. Well, when it finally happens, they're shocked. They expected the opposite. See, you see what your heart allows you to see. And, and, and you hear what your, your heart allows you to hear. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees a number of times, you don't understand what I'm saying because the love of God's not in your heart. You, you, you don't have the capacity to hear it. And so I think God's up there saying, I got a plan to go. If you just trust me, you won't have to fight. If you just trust me, we'll do it slowly. If you just trust me, you're going to multiply. If you just trust me, no one's going to get hurt. And what they hear is, okay, so we're supposed to go into there and slaughter everybody. And see, it's because in the ancient Eastern culture, what it means to go take over land is you slaughter everybody. Those are synonymous terms. And everybody thinks of God fighting for, for them, but alongside of them. No one ever dreamed of a God who would fight for you and you wouldn't have to fight. That just is radical. It, it, it's beyond their conception. 
And so when God says, hey, I'll fight for you, you won't have to fight, what they hear is, okay, so you're going to fight with us? You're going to help us massacre? He says, I want you to go into the land. This is the promised land. It's yours. What they hear is, go take the land, because it now belongs to the Canaanites, so you've got to slaughter them. And everything gets twisted in there. It's like that passage shared a couple weeks ago. To the twisted, God appears twisted. Uh, to, to, to those who are impure, God appears impure. Uh, it's only to the righteous that God appears righteous. You hear what your heart allows you to hear. And so this doesn't get through to them. I, they, they, they just didn't get it. Um, this was a cloudy picture of God. Now I'm going to share two glimpses of truth. They had a lot of clouds when it came to God's love, but the sun broke through sometimes. God's always pushing, influencing as much as he can. And the first example of a, of a glimpse of truth illustrates how I think God would have always liked to have fought. The kind of battles God would have fought if his people only would have trusted him. It comes from, from 2 Kings, a really outstanding passage. It just shines. It just shines. Um, now, in, in this passage, the background is this. Uh, Israel is at war with Aram, uh, this, this country named Aram. And uh, this, this war has been going on for a long time. And the king of Aram is getting frustrated because he's setting all these ambushes for, for Israel's soldiers. But Elisha, the prophet, is an Israelite, and, and he keeps getting a word of knowledge about where those ambushes are set. And so he tells the captain, and, they are, and the Israelites are always able to outsmart the, the Aramites and, and uh, um, escape their ambushes. So the king of Aram says, we've got to kill this Elisha dude. He finds out where he's living, and he sends his troops, and they surround the city. And Elisha is there with his servant. And we pick the story up here in verse 15. It says, When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, got up in the morning and went outside, he saw troops, horses, and chariots surrounding the city. Uh-oh. Elisha's servant asked, Master, what should we do? And then he soiled his pants. Elisha answered, <laughs> Don't be afraid and clean up your trousers. We have more forces on our side than they have on theirs. Now the city's surrounded. But he says, no, there's more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and let him see. And the mountain around Elisha was full of fiery horses and chariots. Let's pause there for a second. Okay, so his eyes are open. Now he sees these angelic forces in the form of fiery horses and chariots. And there's a whole sermon here that could be preached, although it takes us too far astray. Uh, uh, but but this is how you're never alone. You may think you're alone. You may think you're outnumbered. Uh, but when God is on his side, the heavenly hosts are on your side. And greater are those who are for you than any who are against you. Praise God. There's the servant. That's... Yes. Lord, open our eyes so that we can see. All right? Now, the, 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 there's some accommodation going on here. Because I really don't think that angels really fly around in horses and chariots. I may be wrong on that one, but I'm just saying. But see, this is the way everybody in the ancient years thought about the gods, what we call angels. The gods... They're always flying around in fiery horses and chariots. Um, they, they're all over the place in the ancient years and literature. In fact, you can find a number of places in the Old Testament where God, Yahweh, is depicted as riding in a chariot. This, this, is, this is how they, and so if this is the way they think about God, and they still need that belief right now, God's not going to, well, he, he'll, he'll accommodate that. So he tells his angels, hey, you guys, put on that costume with the fiery horse and chariot thing because yeah, we want to comfort the servant. And if you show up in jets, it's not, it's not going to work. So you know, do that, do, let's do that high, fiery horse schnick. And so that's how they appear. So God accommodates. But so and, and it's the fiery horses and fiery chariots were in the ancient Near East. Those are, those are weapons of war. Those, those are like the tanks of, 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 of yesteryear, all right? And so this is a battle that's being waged here. 
And, and so you have all of the angelic forces on the side of Elisha and his servant, and then all of these, these physical forces on the side of the Aram troop, and you're expecting a big fight to break out. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed. Heads are going to get cut off. It's going to be mayhem. Now, a battle is fought, but this, for whatever reasons, this time, the sun was able to shine through, and we get a glimpse of how God would always like to fight battles. So look what happens here. It says, As the Arameans came down to get him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, strike these people with blindness. That looks cruel, but it's actually an act of mercy, as you'll see here in a moment. The Lord struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, now they're blind, this isn't the way, and this isn't the city. Follow me, and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. Now, it looks like he's lying there, but in a way he's telling a profound truth, as we'll see here in a moment. And so Elisha led them into Samaria. Now, Samaria is where the, the Israelites were camped, and the king is there, and the captain's there, and so he leads them right into the Israelite camp. Uh, and then says, uh, where are we here? Elisha said, oh yeah, they, they said, Lord, open the eyes of these men and let them see where they are. The Lord opened their eyes and let them see that they're in the middle of Samaria. And then they soiled all of their pants. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Master, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Oh, should I kill them? He's just like, oh, we got him, we got him, we got him. He's really excited. Elisha answered, don't kill them. Do you kill everyone you take captive into combat? And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> Unless they're hot virgins, then we, then we spare them. But uh, hey, that's the Bible, folks, sorry. Uh, so uh, he says, no, instead of that, give them food and water. Let them eat and drink. Then let them go back to their master. So the king prepared a great feast for them. I'm sure he was disappointed, but he did it. They ate and drank, and then he sent them back to their master. And then look at this. After this, Aramean troops didn't raid Israel's territory anymore. The war was brought to an end. Now that, folks, is a glimpse of truth. That is a gospel story. That is a beautiful story. The story's asking the question, what do you do when you've got your enemies trapped? What do you do when they're at your mercy? What do you do when you have them right where you want them? The king answers what you usually do. Should I kill them? Should I kill them? In the ancient Near East, and yet today, what you do is when you have your enemies trapped, you kill them. You, you, you have the upper hand here. This is what you've been waiting for. And, and, and all the, the Jewish people would have wanted this. Uh, and I, I, in some ways, understandably so, because look at this. This is, war's been going on for, for years. How many widows are there that lost their husbands to the Arameans? How many children lost their parents to the, the Arameans? Uh, how many women were raped by the Arameans? How many kids were killed by the Arameans? You know, and the Israelites did their share of killing too. This is how it goes, tit for tat, tit for tat. So they'd be out there saying, this is vengeance time. This is payback time. This is get even time. This is justice time. This is bloodlust time. Let's have them have it. Only do it slow so they have to suffer. This is bloodlust. Well, you can, we can understand that. And see, if they would have done that, if they would have done that, I, it probably would have felt good in the moment. It feels like, oh God, finally we're avenging the, the deaths of our fathers and parents and, and, and brothers and sisters. We're avenging it. And it might have brought peace for a year or two, maybe even five. But I guarantee you, before too long, um, the Arameans would be back. Because they'd be saying, it's bloodletting time. It's, it's vengeance time. It's retaliation time. It's get even time. Because when you slaughter the soldier, you just recruited his sons to fight you in the next generation. That's how it goes. 
And this war with Aram and Israel that had been going on already for so long, it would go on and on and cycle and cycle and cycle. You kill us, we kill you. You kill more of us, so we kill more of you. It goes round and round and round. All around the Warberry Bush, Aram chased Israel. And Israel stopped to pull up his shorts and pop goes the weasel. I don't know. And you know what? This fallen world has been running around that weasel from time immemorial. This is what, it's, it's a stupid, mindless merry-go-round of bloodshed. It goes on and on and on. We think at this time, if we just kill enough people, we'll finally bring an end to this thing. But it never, ever works. It, it eventually comes back to bite you. If you live by, someone once said, I heard, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I consider it kind of a wise saying. But see, here, here Elisha does the opposite. He knows that this is what you'd like to do, because this is what people have always done. This is what people expect is to be done. But I'm telling you, you know what? Let's give them a feast. Let's give them a feast. Instead of giving them our fists, let's give them a feast. Let's throw a party. Let's, he does this radically unexpected thing. And, and, and see, that ends the war. It does what letting, bloodletting could never do. It, 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 it transforms this enemy into a friend. And this is a glimpse of truth. And you know it's a glimpse of truth because, number one, Nothing in the culture agrees with it. It, it, it. There's nothing like it in the surrounding culture. It's unheard of, unprecedented in the surrounding culture. If they would have killed these folks and believed God told them to kill these folks, that would exactly look like what goes on in the surrounding culture. That's exactly what everyone expects. But when Elisha says, let's throw them a feast, that, that, that's divine revelation. It doesn't come out of any culture. No, this comes from, from heaven. But you especially know that it's a divine revelation because this looks like Jesus Christ. This is the kind of war that Jesus would fight. Uh, uh, Jesus reveals a God who doesn't fight by resorting to violence. He reveals a God who fights by refusing to engage in violence. Jesus reveals a God who, who doesn't uh, kill flesh and blood. He fights principalities and powers by refusing to kill flesh and blood. He reveals a God who doesn't win wars by killing enemies. He wins wars by dying for enemies out of love for the enemies. This is a God who, who, who he, he does battle, not, not by getting involved in hatred, but by expressing self-sacrificial love. A God who fights not by conquering, but by serving. A, a God who fights not by picking up the power of the sword, but by picking up the power of the cross, praise God. This is a God who fights not by raising his almighty fist, but by throwing an almighty feast. And see, that, folks, is the power of the cross. It looks foolish and weak to the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. It looks weak. Because we're all acclimated to, to, the, to the violent definition of power, the wind definition of power. But cross power is actually the power of God, and it's the most powerful force in the universe because all the swords and the bombs and the bullets and the tanks and the, and the laws and the, and, and the policies in the world couldn't turn the, uh, the, the, the people of Aram into the friends of, of Israel, couldn't end this war. But the feast did, praise God. A feast can do what a bomb can never do. Amen. And that reflects the power of the cross. They had a lot of cloudy views of God's love in the Old Testament, but man, this is a big, beautiful, sunny day. And, and for whatever reasons, I don't know why it didn't happen all the times, but at this time it was able to happen. And this is the way God wants to fight. And there's no reason why. The promised land could have, be done, could have been done this way, if only. Every battle that was fought with bloodshed could have been done this way. Why, why wouldn't God want to fight all of his battles like this? This is, reflects the kind of character that he has. Uh, if only his people could have, have, have uh, trusted him. It, it raises this question for us, folks. Who in your life might there be that you need to throw a feast for? All right? Just chew on that. Holy Spirit, convict us if we need to. Uh, are you in a sort of Aram Israelite tit-for-tat thing with somebody? A retaliation game with somebody? 
you're thinking ill thoughts about them, maybe you're speaking ill words to them or about them, or you're doing actions towards them or, or behind their back, but there's, there's some kind of a war going on. And, and, and the question is, how long are you going to let that go? Uh, when are you going to throw the party to end, bring an end to this thing? Uh, what you don't realize is that, that that's harming you more than you could possibly realize. Uh, we're, we're, when we have grudges, unforgiveness, bitterness, live in a, in a narrative where we're always looking to get even because they did this to us, so we're going to do this to them, that, that, just, that just pollutes your soul, man. That, 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 that's just, you're introducing spite and hatred and negativity into your life. And it can, all it does is suck life out of you and suck joy out of you and suck peace out of you and suck Christ-likeness out of you. It's harming you. It's harming you. In fact, realize this, that... You see, this is so the devil because it's so deceptive. It feels like you're, you're, you're the one in power when you're not going to talk to them anymore, when you're going to do this, when you're going to you know, not give them anything or whatever. It feels like you're like, like getting them. Oh, tough you. Wow, look at you. <laughs> actually, it's not. You're actually empowering them because you're empowering them to be planting evil in your life and spite in your life and unforgiveness in your life and negativity in your life. You're empowering them to suck the life of Christ right out of you. You're, 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 you're empowering them to introduce cancer in you. This is cancer. It, it eats you alive. That's why Paul says, in fact, you're empowering them to let, give the, the devil a foothold in your life. Because Paul says in Ephesians 4 that, he says, be angry, that's going to happen, that's human. Be angry, but don't sin when you're angry. And the way you can sin when you're angry is by going to bed with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because when you do that, he says, you give the devil a foothold. Why would you want to give anyone the power to plant a foothold of the devil in your life? That's a giant leech on your heart, a giant leech on your spirituality. It, it, the devil makes you think that you're the one in power, but you're the one who's actually being, having the power against. It's, it's, it's hurting you. And the only way to get out of this cancer, the only way to avoid it and get healed from it, is to fight God's way of fighting. You just opt out of the stupid merry-go-round. Opt out of the venom and the hatred and the vi violent thoughts and violent words. The only way to get free of this is to throw a party. Do the opposite of what your fallen nature wants to do. Yeah, your fallen self, uh, that lie there, you, you want to get even. You want to not just get even, you want to up at one. If you can just crucify that sucker and throw a party for the person, whatever that might look like, a nice word, a card, a gesture, whatever it would look like, you, you interrupt, you interrupt that, 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 that merry-go-round. You interrupt that negativity flow. And now you introduce the power of the cross that can do marvelous, marvelous things. And it may be that you'll never particularly like this person or want to hang out with this person, but at least you stop feeding the poison that's going into your, in, into your soul. Who in your life might you need to throw a party for? Okay, think about that. Think about that. I, I want to quickly address a second way in which we see the sun uh, breaking through the clouds in the Old Testament to show forth God's love. It has to do with the fact that there are dozens and dozens of references in the Old Testament uh, that portray Yahweh as the husband of Israel, and Israel's the bride. And so the relationship between God and people is portrayed as this husband-wife relationship. Here's one example of it. It's Isaiah 62. It says, the Lord says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate. Israel's gone through a real rough patch here where they were, felt forsaken and they felt desolate. The Lord says, that's not going to always be the case. But you shall be called, quote, my delight is in her. That's going to be your new name. And your land shall be called married, because you're going to be married to me. That's an odd name for a land, isn't it? Married. And the Lord delights in you. For the Lord delights in you, and your, your land shall be married to me. 
For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder or your creator marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is a sunny day here, folks. This is a glimpse of truth. And you know it's a glimpse of truth because, number one, it doesn't agree with anything in the culture. No one in the surrounding culture ever thought of, 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 of seeing the gods as, as, as their, their spouses. This is absolutely unique and absolutely beautiful. The warrior portraits of God completely agree with the surrounding culture, but when you have pictures like this, Christ-like pictures like this, it doesn't agree with anything in the culture, which is one further evidence that this is coming straight from heaven. Even more importantly, you know that it's a glimpse of truth because it conforms to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Christ came as Yahweh looking for the bride. He is that bride's groomsman in the Old Testament, and now he's come to earth to rescue his bride and to save his bride. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ. Uh, and and it, Paul, even in Ephesians 5, likens our relationship to God as a relationship between, like the one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. And what it reveals is that God has always wanted this intimate, passionate love relationship with people. Now, that's too beautiful for most people to handle. Throughout history, it's been too beautiful for most people to handle. We're addicted to mediocrity. We want the mediocre, mediocre God. And, and we can't handle the truth. Truth? You can't handle the truth. Now it's this beautiful. Uh, so, so... Though ancient Israelites, like most people in the, in the surrounding culture, like most people throughout history, including, I'm afraid, a lot of Christians, they, when they think about the relation with God, they think about a, a relation between a taskmaster and, and we're the fearful, you know, sort of subjects. Or they think about a relation between an employer and employee, uh, between a captain and his, his soldiers. They think about a relationship between a judge and a defendant, a relationship between a lawgiver and we're the, 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 the law obeyers, uh, or between a warrior and we're his assistants. That's how... People have always thought about the relationship with God. But no one's been thinking about God as a lovely spouse who, who just wants to adore us as we adore him. Uh, this is too beautiful for, for most people to handle. And see, since God isn't a coercive God, there comes a point where he's got to tolerate them viewing him as a tyrant or as this taskmaster or as just this lawgiver. And so you find portraits of God in the Bible that look like God is just a lawgiver or a tyrant or a taskmaster. But it's not who God really is. He lets his people view him like that because that's the best they could do right now. But it's not who he really is. And sometimes he says that. You find expressions like in Hosea, he says, you've been calling me a master, but man, do I long, I long for the day when you call me friend. I'm getting tired of this master gig, all right? I know that's the best you can do right now, but he keeps on influencing. Someday you're going to realize that I'm not your employer, I'm not your taskmaster, I'm not your logger, I'm your lover. I want a love relationship. The kind of relationship God's always wanted with people. It's a passionate, intimate, marriage-like relationship. He's always wanted a relationship where he's totally poured out towards us so that we would respond by being totally poured out to him. That's the kind of relationship God really wants and has always wanted. He wants a relationship where he's totally open to us, intimate with us, which is what Calvary's about. He's showing us his innermost heart so that we would trust him enough to show him our innermost hearts so he could begin to heal those hearts. Oh, he's looking for a relationship in which, that, in which perfect love has cast out all fear, a fearless relationship. He's looking for a relationship where there's no more any condemnation uh, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, he, he, he's looking for a relationship, praise God, where he in his own triune being envelops us and invites us into the relationships of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we share in that perfect love and share in that perfect joy and share in that perfect peace and we do it for all eternity. That's what God's been after. And we just impose our mediocrity all over it because we can't handle the truth. 
Folks, we need to hear this as much today as ancient Israelites did because we're still tend to be conformed to the culture and prone towards mediocrity. The word that he gave Israel was this. You feel like you're forsaken. You've been called. You think your name is forsaken. But I'm telling you, once you realize that I'm your spouse, your name is my, I delight in you. That's your name. And the concept of name is, is not just a tag. It's, it's, it's your character. I call you, my delight is in you. And you thought you lived in the land of, called desolate, but you live in the land called married. Hallelujah. And maybe right now, for, you've gone through some really nasty crap in life, and right now you're feeling like you are Mr. or Mrs. Forsaken who lives on 000 Desolate Lane, but you need to hear your spouse telling you, your name, your real name is I Delight in You, and you live in, you're married to me land. You live in the land of Christ. You are in Christ. You live in the land. Your name is blameless, and you live in the land of Christ. Your name is spotless. Your name is holy, and you live in the land of the triune God. Hallelujah. Your name is lovely. Your name is, is I rejoice over you and delight in you, praise God. And you live in the land of holiness, in the land of my being, in the land of my salvation, in the land of justification, in the land of there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, praise God. Can you imagine that? Can you see that? Can you envision that? Because you may be feeling really outside. You may be feeling unforgiven. You may be feeling alienated from God, but... If you can just imagine, if you can just see, if you can just hear, if you can just sense the truth of your heavenly spouse. As he says to you, I rejoice over you, I delight in you. I'm giddy over you like a new husband is over a new wife. Hallelujah. He's, he, he clasps his hands over you. If you can see that, begin to experience that, well, it changes everything. How you feel changes, because how you feel has to do with what, what, what tapes, movies, and narratives are you running between your ears. Run this narrative. Paul says this, as and I always come back to this because this is so foundational. As we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, with an unveiled mind, this is 2 Corinthians 3, the Spirit opens up our mind, our imagination, so we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we see that, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, can we see this? Can we see the beauty? A, a, a God whose beauty outruns all of our mediocrity and has always outrun it. It's, 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 it's a question of how much beauty are we going to let in? Because he still is not going to force you to do it. You have to choose to believe this. So what are the mediocre views of God in your mind? What, where, where has the culture uh, polluted you so you, can't, you still have clouds? Even though the full God's been revealed, you still have clouds. And see, it keeps you from, from, from going into his likeness. It's what we see that determines what we become. I always tell people that you've got to let God love you warts and all, as you are, because um, it's the love of God that evaporates those warts. If, you are, if you're trying to, you think you have to pick off your warts before God loves you, uh, see, you pick off a wart, it's just going to grow back. It may be a different wart, maybe in a different place, but you may grow three back. You'll never get off of your warts in a healthy way unless you can be loved in the middle with your warts. So go to God with your warts, all right? Say, so here, here I am, warty, Mr. Wart in the land of Wartville. And then let him say to you, no, I can handle those warts, all right? I'll handle those warts because I call you lovely. I call you adorable. I rejoice over you. My delight is in you. You are my spouse. You are holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. All right, all right. So I, I just end, I end with this two reminders. Number one, um, are there, is there anyone in your life that you need to throw a feast for? Don't, don't let go of that. Don't forget that. It, 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 it really is sucking the life out of you. Even, even little grudges. Um, they may seem little. Okay, so I hate this person. So what? Uh, it, 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 that's a life sucker. That's a life sucker. 
It's okay to, to, to not like to hang out with certain people, you know, certain people you want to avoid, but if you have any negativity against them, it's, it's, a, it's a parasite. It's a, it's, a, it's a leech, a spiritual leech. Pull that thing off and, and, and fight God's way. And so do something surprising. Send them a card. Remember their birthday. Say a nice word. Do the opposite of what your flesh wants you to do. Do the Elisha thing. Fight God's war and watch how that liberates you. Uh, the second thing is, are you spending time doing what God married you to do? Uh, which is just to hang out. You get married because hopefully you like each other. <laughs> you, you, you like being together more than you like being apart. That's minimally why you get married, right? Um, but it can happen if you're not careful that, that, that you, you lose that center. And you, you know, there's jobs to do, there's chores you got to carry out, there's kids you got to raise, there's bills you got to pay, and houses you got to fix. And if you're not careful, this is how it applies both to our earthly marriage and to our heavenly marriage. If you're not careful, you become roommates who do nothing but raise kids and, and change diapers and, and fix houses and pay bills and whatever. Roommates. But you didn't get married to be roommates. You got married to be together, to love each other, loving each other. So also with our relation with Christ. We need to carve out time where we just go and sit in the presence of God, warts and all, and let him love us. Love him loving you. And as you love him loving you, then you'll love him more and you'll find that opens up more for you to experience his love for you, which makes you love him more, which opens you up to experience more. And now you've got a good cycle going on. It's the opposite of the merry-go-round I was talking about before. That cycle of violence works inside of us and outside of us and it escalates. This love cycle escalates as you just sit in the presence of God. But it means you've got to make time for dates, dates with Jesus. Um, carve it out. I just like to go get alone in a room, turn off the lights, put on some nice music, and then... With my, in my imagination, the Holy Spirit brings me to Jesus. That's his job. The, the unveiled mind, and I see the glory of God. See him rejoice over you. Hear him, feel him, sense him. It's what you experience that begins to impact you. Go places with him. Delight in him, delighting in you. And um, that's where the warts start to evaporate. Praise God. Praise God. Would you stand? All right, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Um, don't leave with that burden alone. And if you're here this morning and you're not married to Jesus, you're not a surrendered disciple of his, I encourage you to consider becoming one. And to do that, just come up here and talk to these folks, and they'll help you get started on this uh, walk with Jesus, learning how to become the spouse of Jesus Christ. As we leave here, can we do it as the bride of Christ, who delights in God, delighting in us? Can we do it as the people who are committed to getting all of our life, worth, and identities and source and security from the love of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ and from nothing else? Get filled with that love and overflow with that love to all people at all times, in all situations, no fine print, no ifs, ands, or buts, no exceptions. If you're willing to do that, say amen and get out of here and go love your neighbors. Amen. God bless you guys.